Hello, Connected Parents, and welcome to another episode of Connected Parenting. Um, today is part of my guest series. I have a wonderful guest today who's actually a friend of mine, Rhonda Hewer. Rhonda is the president of Dropkick Math Academy. Uh, she's a lecturer at, at Wilfrid Laurier University Bachelor of Education program. She holds a master's degree uh, in education specializing in mathematics development. Um, she's been an educator with the Waterloo Region District School Board for over 19 years with a passion for supporting students in developing mathematical proficiency. With a wealth of experience in math and expertise in the field, Rhonda has become the go-to leader who passionately works to ensure that all students are supported on their math journey. She's particularly attuned to the issue of math anxiety and trauma, which she helps families work through with a combination of insight and understanding. By dedicating her career to this cause, Rhonda has made an immense impact with the school's community and beyond. Rhonda's passion for math education has opened up remarkable opportunities as she travels internationally, presenting at math conferences and sharing her invaluable expertise in the field. Above all, she's a proud mother of three who understands full-heartedly the bane of math homework. The following is my conversation with Rhonda. Hi everyone, I'm Jennifer Colary. I'm a child and family therapist and a parenting coach and the founder of Connected Parenting. And welcome to the Connected Parenting Weekly Podcast. Join me every week and we'll tackle everything from temper tantrums to bedtime to sibling issues to teenage angst. Parenting can be so wonderful, but it can be so hard. Parents often say to me, hey, can you just come live at my house? This is the next best thing. Let's do this together. Welcome, Rhonda. Hello. Thank you. Very excited about this conversation. We'll, we'll get into this, but I have actually, as a child, had math trauma. So I, oh, no. yeah, yep. It's, it's a thing. So first of all, can you tell everyone, like, just tell everyone what you do? What, what is, tell me about your experience and what you're bringing. So I'm currently uh, working at Wilfrid Laurier University uh, as a prof, and this is this is my passion. What we're talking about today around the math trauma that has happened in uh, people's lives and how that has really affected uh, career paths and really affected um, just their general feeling about themselves as learners and their general confidence in uh, being in situations where they're gonna become uncomfortable. So I'm, there's actually a course that I teach called Math Without Tears. And it's, it's actually quite lovely. And it, it's uh, an undergrad course. So I have lots of anybody from year two to year four come into the classroom. And the stories that they share are just heartbreaking around um, the debilitating fear that's been instilled with them for the most simplest mathematical concepts. And many of them share with me how um, like they've actually moved into professional circles. And when they're in professional circle, circles, they have such a stress that there's going to be some form of math that comes into it that's going to make the other people in this circle think less of them on an intellectual level. Yeah. So that is, um, that's what I'm currently doing. I've also, for the last 19 years, have been part of a public education system where math is my passion. So I was a math teacher and then I moved into a role centrally um, that was a consultant in learning and development and supported grade seven to 12 mathematics. And then because of like the, the pandemic and all of these things that we've seen that are affecting 
um, student civility and mathematics, I've now started up a little company called Dropkick Math because we're tired of math being the bully. We're ready to like do some drop kicking in math's face and say like, no more, no more do you get to bully me around. I love it. And I have to say like in my practice, this is something I hear so much about. Um, you know, the, the overthinking, the anxiety, and then the brain just freezes. And I'll share a little story with everyone. We were kind of giggling about it before we started the, the podcast, but I had a math teacher who literally terrified me. I, I had math trauma. 100% this was in middle school, which is the worst. Um, I had a teacher who was the math teacher, but also the gym teacher, very muscly, intimidating man. Um, you know, giant biceps. And he kept a, a container of yardsticks in the corner of the classroom. And he would hover over people's desk with the yardstick sort of over his shoulder, asking you the math question. And then if you didn't know the math question or didn't answer it fast enough, he would literally smash the yardstick on the desk and, and it would splinter. And then he would ask the question again, and then he would keep this up. So the other kids were like, oh my God, she doesn't know, sir. And I would literally walk into math class and try to be as small as I could. How can I be invisible in this yeah. class? What can I do so this man does not see me, notice me? And he would usually find me because I was doing that. Um, and I wasn't always the, the victim. There were lots of kids who were. And honestly, I, I had stomach aches. I didn't want to go to school. I dreaded math beyond belief. And now if somebody asks me a, a simple math question, I absolutely freeze. So what's going on for kids when that happens? Talk to me about what you've what you've learned about this experience. Yeah, so it's it's really a form of like debilitating mental shutdown. And and what you've described is a really I'm sorry that you experienced that kind of math trauma, but like math is kind of a beautiful thing. We can't hold it against math. We just have to hold it against the messenger who brought math right. to your life. Yeah. Um but but that is a common situation. There is one teacher or um a series of teachers where this has happened and it was interesting when you're saying that you felt your peer group was also judging you and, and rolling eyes and feeling like, oh my gosh, you didn't get it. Like, can we just move on? Because that's what tends to happen is uh, students get in this space where, where they're so stressed out about the math that like their brain literally shuts down. And this is probably a question that they're quite capable of doing in other circumstances. Mm -hmm. But in that moment, they are like a fainting goat. They have just dropped to the floor and they are froze and they don't know, their palms are sweaty, might have a lump in their throat, they have an increased heart rate and, and they just want this moment to be over. And this, this starts to manifest as anxiety or dread this debilitating fear of being sure. wrong and and it it um impacts it your ability sorry it can generalize it can like generalize to other situations and other things yeah completely it, it 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 really impacts their ability to enjoy math their motivation to take any more math courses or do well in math and i know um jennifer you have children who have gone through the university mm -hmm. or college route and when you're looking at those programs, when you start choosing the prerequisites that you have, if if you have avoided math, it limits considerably the opportunities that lie on you on the other side of uh, high school. And I think like how many people could be successful and really enjoying careers that they didn't have access to because they had this sort of you know, math trauma and panic. So I think exactly. it's a 
really important issue. So I want to go back to the anxiety piece. So for people who are listening, I mean, if you're really in a state of fight or flight, like I was, I literally, I, it would start before math class would even start. Like if I knew I had math the next class or later that day, I would already be building into that fight or flight state. And so yeah. what's happening is you're getting flooded with adrenaline. You're getting flooded with cort cortisol, the frontal lobe, which is actually the part of your brain that does math literally right. goes offline. The midbrain is left, which is basically a caveman who doesn't know what's going on right. um, and can't add anything. Uh, and, and it really becomes this situation where it becomes a fear loop. You start being afraid of math and then you start being afraid of other questions that people ask you and you don't want to look stupid and you don't want to embarrass yourself in front of your peers. So it's really a physiological shutdown. Yes. Would you call it a fainting goat? I love that. That's yes. Yeah. I actually, um, there was a group of women, there was, there was parents who wanted to support their children. And because math instruction has changed so significantly that many of us experienced math, um, we actually started, a, it, we, we called it the fainting goats guild. And we, oh we, we would meet once a week and they just really wanted to like, Hey, can you reteach me math? And the interesting thing that came out of that, like I was, I was definitely expecting them to feel better about their math abilities. But what they said is like, you've reaffirmed for me, like I can learn, like you've just opened up a door, like beyond math. Right. Yeah. So like, not only is it what you were describing about your experience, not only is it this, like this mathematical ability that you're, that you're fearful of, but you start to lose faith in your ability, like your smartness, right. Absolutely. Your intellectual. Yeah. I have kids yourself. all the time that will say to me, like clients that I work with, I'm done. Yeah. I'm stupid. I can't learn. And they're brilliant. They're absolutely brilliant. And, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get into this, but children learn mathematical concepts differently, right? Yeah. It, there's, there's different ways that they learn and there's different modalities that reach them, but you're right. It generalizes to I'm, I'm dumb. I can't do it. Yeah. It's yeah. also yeah. something that I, you know, I want to speak to this too. Like parents often feel very passionate about reading and about math, yeah. especially if the parent was good at math. And they, it was easy for them and they do want their child to have all those options. So what can happen there for, for a parent? What does a parent go through when their kid is this fainting goat in math class? Right. So, um, it's interesting. Cause like you said, you're talking about the parent that's actually feeling good about their math abilities. Mm -hmm. Um, what I find interesting about that statement, and and uh, of course I'm generalizing at this point because there are definitely people who truly understand math, mm -hmm. but the way the majority of us as adults were taught math was in a very procedural, yep. systemic, like memorize the rules. Here's a little trick that will help you. A very disconnected way. Yeah. Of Right. Yeah. Kill and drill. Exactly. Kill and drill. And for some of us, myself included, that actually worked out quite well because we were very good at playing the game of school. And it was it was just a like a recipe. Right. Like you go in, look for the example on the test that's similar to the, the one that we did in the textbook and just regurgitate that yeah. for really deep thinkers. Like that's why mathematics was such a tricky thing for them because they wanted to understand why this was happening and they were trying to make connections and chances are they probably thought about it in their mind in a different way than what the teacher was saying, this is how it must be shown. And because they couldn't connect those two things, they just felt like they didn't understand that. I feel like I diverged from the question. Oh yeah. So those who were saying that they're really good at math, um, might actually not be as good at math as what they think because they're kind of just good at doing those procedures. And so then what's happening is we don't teach in that way anymore. 
we want to teach from a level of conceptual understanding. So these parents who feel like they've been successful with prior methods mm. are really struggling with their child to be like, why can't you just get this? Like, let me just show you how to do that. Oh, here's a trick. And they're actually interfering with the learning process that like this developmental that's, trajectory yeah. that we've discovered. That's really important. I think that's important for parents to hear. And I feel like also parents will, even though there's sort of this new exactly how you're explaining it's conceptual it's helping kids kind of travel through their brain and make connections and see patterns and actually see the beauty in math can't even believe I just said that sentence um, <laughs> but but they they go back to the killing drill no I don't care what your teacher says you need to do this you need I and mean, they put them in these programs that are the really kind of and, and there's some great math programs out there I'm not saying that but there are some that are really just wrote 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 repeat 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 kill and drill and I we end up having these kind of conflicts this way um, so I think that's a really important piece for parents to understand. Um, I have a question also, I, I, and I don't know if this is the way math is taught anymore in school. It certainly was when my kids were little, um, where you had to explain your answer, right? So yeah. for kids who are gifted, who are who do math in their head, who just literally see the answer. Yeah. You ask a kid like that, show your answer, and they're rolling on the floor. Wow, it's so stupid. It's like yeah. it's like explaining how something's green. Like, stop it. Like, I remember Jacob in particular, just like, hating that process and right. really just doing it in his head or kids would see a very unique way of doing it they do it that way and the teacher would say no that's not I can't give you the marks because I can't see your work or that's not the way that you do it you do it this way and it it sort of creates this tumult right so can you speak to that for a minute because I think that's an interesting dilemma yeah definitely I just want to circle back though to something else that you said around um like, like back to these parents who are really focused on the procedures and the, like, mm -hmm. I want to have my child in something that looks similar to what I did because I was successful in it. Yeah. With that, what these, um, this way of learning math through procedures and drill and kill and memorization, what it really does is give us the illusion of understanding. So, so we have this idea that kids are really prospering in math. And, and this ties into what you're asking me about the explain. So we, th we think they have this strong understanding and what we teach math in silos, right? So we're teaching this unit right now and then we'll, we'll be done that unit and we'll move into this unit. And what happens is because I'm just living in this unit right now and I've maybe got some anchor charts up on the wall that are explaining to me the step, like step one, do this, step two, do this, step three, do this. I'm actually going to perform probably quite well on that test, or I'm going, it's going to look like I really understand what's happening. Mm -hmm. If we come back to this same child two months later, the retention hasn't stayed there because there was never a level of understanding. And if that step-by-step -step process isn't there for me to look at, I don't really remember how to start this. So there's yeah. an illusion of understanding. So when we're talking about, um, having students explain their thinking as tedious as that may be. And by no means um, does that have to be every single time this child answers a question at all. But it is important because it helps us identify not that the child has just got the answer right, but that the child understands why that answer is the right answer. And that's the difference between procedural knowledge that I can just follow a set of calculations and sure. get this answer right. Yeah. And this conceptual understanding idea that like, I got the answer negative four and I, I totally understand why negative four is the correct answer. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really interesting one. And I think, I think that makes sense because you're talking about a foundation. You'll see this in reading too, sometimes where kids will learn to decode 
and they'll be very fluent decoders, but you ask them, what did you just read? I don't know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The understanding and the comprehension isn't there. So it's this very layered learning. Um, so I think that's a really important thing for parents to understand that on the surface, it may look like they're doing really well, but are they really grasping the concepts? Can they take this and apply this to something else? How can this kind of enrich their whole thinking in terms of math and how to see um, how, how interesting and fun math can be? So one specific group, and I know that a lot of the, a lot of my listeners, their kids are gifted. A lot of them are a lot of kids um, and a lot of gifted kids really resist that. And, and, and they may understand how to get it, but it's just exhausting to put it into words. Or another area I see, you may have a kid who's very, very strong verbally, and they do really well with reading and comprehension and all that. Math is not their greatest strength. They can do math really well. And then when they have to verbally explain an answer or mm-hmm. write down an answer in words, they get lost. So they're, where they used to, to, to shine, it's also pulled down because of a learning disability that they had. So can you speak to that for a minute? Cause I think that's, that's an interesting thought. So when, when teachers are looking at assessing a child's ability to do a certain concept, um, what we focus on is what's called triangulation of data. So we have, we should be focusing on observations, conversations and products. Mm-hmm. And in that, Some people will see that as an equilateral triangle, meaning that you need the same amount of observations, conversations, and products for every child. This is not the situation. This is how we can differentiate assessment to meet the needs of the students in front of us. So if we have a child who is um, better at verbalizing, then you're going to see more conversations with that child probably than products. Mm -hmm. And, And you get the idea. So the triangle looks different for different children. In terms of like that agonizing, listen, lady, I understand this. Why do you keep breaking this yardstick on my desk when like you're killing me here, right? Um, A teacher should be able to see that and be aware that this child has a clear understanding of this topic and then let's move on. Right. So Mm -hmm. oftentimes what I would do when I was in the classroom is um, for students that similar to what you are describing, I would say, okay, you need to draw a picture for me once I need to show you need to show me once, maybe twice that Mm -hmm. you truly Mm -hmm. understand why this answer is the answer. And then you can answer the rest. And now here, here's a different activity that I want you to be working on right now Um, in saying that. That's kind of theory versus practicality. When you're a teacher and you have 30 students in your class, it is very difficult to try and, yeah, it is very difficult to try and manage all of this. But um, when done, it's kind of magical. Uh, So I think, I think the key to that is I would agree with you. I don't want these students who have already demonstrated a quality level of understanding to have to continue to demonstrate this level of understanding just because everybody else in the class is doing that. Um, Similar to somebody who's still super struggling with a concept, we wouldn't want them to like have to be writing lots of products or whatever. Yeah. As well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's a great answer. It's very nuanced. It's very complicated. And what I love about what you're doing is bringing that richness and that depth to it. Um, I think that's really important. Um, At the beginning, you were talking about stories um, that kids have had with Matt. Can you share some of those with us? Because I think that will really speak to our listeners. 
so one of the things that I do in the, the Math Without Tears is I have students keep what we call a math learning portfolio so they can they can actually see their growth over the 12 weeks that we're together right. and um part of that is them reframing their personal math narrative so uh some stories that have been shared so i also teach um teacher candidates so bachelor of ed students uh who will become teachers and i do the same with them i have them keep a, a math learning portfolio. And part of that math learning portfolio is for them to uh, document their own personal math narrative. So when they first come into the course, we have them write a little bit about how you felt about math or what, what do you feel is your um, math, what's your tell your mathematics story and describe your experiences and how you felt as a mathematics student. And then at the by the end of the course, after we've had a chance to um, try and show them that they're actually quite brilliant mathematicians. They just haven't had the right learning environment or the right opportunities for them to continue to learn in. Then we have them write how they feel at the end of it. And there are some that actually bring quite tears to my eyes. And one, um, one teacher candidate was she's an adult she has a couple children of her own i think she was in her 30s and she is actually a music major and wants to get into secondary music but had to take this course and was dreading taking this course but actually ended up saying it was one of the the best experiences because of what we've talked about earlier that it brought confidence to her that that she had lost a long time ago. And she she talked a lot about how she was constantly told throughout her uh, educational career that she was a creative thinker and not a critical thinker, that these were messages that came to yep. her and how this shaped her education experience. And because of that, the path she chose for herself. And math was a very big struggle for her. And she, the grades that were associated with math were usually D minuses. Mm -hmm. And this impacted her belief in herself as a learner. So her parents were concerned about her poor grades in math and enrolled her in a uh, tutoring program outside of school. And she described it as a form of punishment for her. So it was probably one of those kill and drill. Right. Yeah. Yeah, okay. exactly. exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and although she felt like she improved a little bit because of the math tutoring, as soon as she stepped out of the program, she like just resorted right back. And once she was in grade 10, she was in a class where the teacher uh, mistreated many students, including herself. And she did not understand any of the material. And she ended up failing the course. And then the following year, she had to take the course again and had this exact teacher again oh and and what actually happened which is a crazy thing he said to her these words i i will agree to pass you if you promise not to become a doctor wow yeah wow. so as you can understand these experiences have had a negative influence on her relationship with math of course wow, wow. yeah there, there was um there was another student, and this was in the mathematics with so the undergrad course, who talked about, and this is actually something very common that we see as well, and it goes to that illusion of understanding that we were talking about earlier, mm -hmm. is some students actually perform quite well in math up till about grade 10 or 11. Yes, yes that happens to gifted kids a lot, 
actually. Yes. yes. Grade 11, they often crash, right? Yes. And yep. and so you, this is kind of, that's interesting that you say that, Jennifer, because it's, it's back to that idea of like, did they really understand the math or was it an illusion of understanding? Because the curriculum in grade 10 and 11 starts to take a path where the foundations of mathematics have to be so solid because no longer is there one way to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of bringing together all of your, um, all of the tools that you have yeah. in your toolbox and having to be able to use them fluently and know which one to use in what situation. Right, right. So this becomes a struggle for students who have just kind of like, here's right. the unit I'm in and I did really well on that test and now I don't have to think about that anymore because now I'm in this unit. Right. And what and speak to this for a second, because I, I it's I, I've thought a lot about this. Why often grade 11 is a year where, you know, gifted kids have been able to kind of sail along on just kind of knowing it and getting it. And then when they have to either, as you say, like demonstrate it in a richer way or practice, like actually do oh, it. And right. they usually love that. They're not big fans of that because that threatens <laughs> their intelligence, right? If I have to try at this, if I have to put effort in, then maybe I'm not as smart as I think I am. So I'd rather coast and and do okay because look how smart I am rather than work hard and risk my intelligence being questioned, right? So yeah. it's a tricky one. A hundred percent. And what you're talking about is these fixed messages, right? These yes. yeah. fixed mindset messages. You're so that good they, enough, right? You're so smart, right? So we really need to think about how we're praising our, and what we're honoring in our students' learning. And when we tend to praise grades and when we tend to praise smartness, this fixed mindset message sure. sets into place where um, they, like, I, I don't know enough about gifted students, so you can tell me if this makes sense. But um, in a general sense, what happens is students who are labeled as smart stop taking risks. Absolutely. That's what happens with a fixed mindset. It's that growth mindset that allows them to keep trying. And they develop this very strange relationship with effort, right? Yes. Effort becomes a threat. Yes. Instead of a sign of being a really good learner and, and someone who's able to take risks. So I think that's particularly important, I think, for, for kids who are very good at math. I think that's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's like a weird, weird thing in math that's like historically been created. And it's like a myth that, that we all take in and accept. And that's, if you're struggling in math, you must not be good at it. Mm. But that's a really thing to think about it that way, because if I'm not struggling, it means I already know this concept. Yes. Like I'm not learning, like struggle and learning come together. Right. So why would I why would I think if I'm struggling, yeah, like I'm not smart? It just means I'm in the learning process and struggling as part of that learning process. But when it comes to math, yeah. it's very much defined who's smart at math and who's not well, smart at math. Which like, is imagine you had a baby that's learning how to walk and you're like, oh, he's struggling. He's not going to be a good walker. That's yes. it. Walking's <laughs> off the table. Forget it. Do something else. Like, that's okay. I was never a walker either. You'll be fine. Exactly. Like, yeah. Really, it does. All of these messages kind of get in there like programs, right? And we have to, I always say to parents, you know, there's, Connected Parenting has kind of two really important pillars to it. One is compassion and empathy and understanding and, and that creates, you know, safety and all of those things. And the other is you know, really helping understand that you're the architect of your child's brain. Like right. you are, you know, so, so the, the other thing you are as a parent is a substitute frontal lobe, right? You're the one organizing their day and helping them remember things and all of that. But 
you you are putting in a lot of programs into your children's brains and you you are a product of the of the programs that were put into your brains and you know what it's just a program which means you can rewrite it you can right. learn a new way and i think that's what you're doing which is so exciting in this program and i totally interrupted your story because you were in the middle of telling me about this person so continue <laughs> no that's see this is what's going to happen because this is also exciting to be able to sit and talk about all of this um yeah, so this, this particular person did very well in math up until about grade 10 or 11. And then at which point, the, uh, back to the, this idea of these fixed mindset messages, the, the messages they were starting to receive were, were things like, you're probably just not a math person, or um, your calling is more on the creative and literary side. Uh, don't worry about it. There's lots of opportunities outside of math. And like these kind of mess like there is no math person right and that comes back to this growth mindset idea that like everybody can you're not born with a certain intellectual ability you can grow that intellectual ability so this idea that like it's interesting because you're using like the walking uh analogy you know i often think about it as reading like never would we say oh you're not a reading person. So don't worry about it. Like, let's not worry about that reading, but we're okay to say that about math. And that creates this stigma around like, it's just this subject that only few are privy to, right? That only few have access to. And, and, and kids fully believe that. Oh, uh, that's not for me. That's for other people. I'll never be able to do that. Um, yeah. I think that's so important. I think this is such an important conversation. I really do. I think it's huge. So, so, so for that person, what ended up happening for them? Uh, for the person that in grade 10, uh, yeah. Made it to grade 11? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then they ended up um, going, they, they totally cleared steer of any, anything steer clear of yeah. any math and science courses in university. And they majored in sociology, which is not a bad thing at all, mm -hmm. um, but they are in a situation. So this was an undergrad. They're in a situation where they actually uh, would love to go on and do their master's or their their doctorate even, yes. but yes. won't because of the statistics that are involved yes. in it. They're so fearful. Yeah, and you know what's so interesting? I had to take stats for psychology. Yeah, I was beyond petrified. I can't even tell you, but I actually did pretty well in it. And I, 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 I because it for me it was related to things that I loved and I already yeah. knew I was good at the things that I loved and it came to life for me in a different way that, I mean, I, I won't say that no teacher was able to reach me because I think once I was Renzetti'd, it was like, I, I could, I just couldn't, I couldn't, I avoided math at all costs. And, but I really discovered, oh, you know what? I'm not terrible at yeah. math. Those concepts made sense to me because they were concrete because I could figure out why, what these numbers were attached to. And that's how my brain worked and I actually didn't do too badly, but that's okay. So I totally interrupted you again. So, so no, that was good. Well, well, like what you're, what you're showing is the importance of a context, right? Mm -hmm. Like make, making the learning relevant to the students who are in your class, giving a context that makes sense so that it's not just this abstract symbolic representation of some sort of mathematical concept. It's actually like, Oh, what you're talking about, that's what it actually looks like in the real world, or that's what it looks like in my real world. And right. Oh, so it doesn't surprise me that you actually um, performed quite yeah, well. I did find it. meant something to you. Yeah. yeah, it made sense to me. So this is a really important conversation. I love how we've gone, I've gone on into the layers of this. So 
So I guess I want to ask the question, like, what can parents do? So they have this knowledge, they've listened to how rich math can be and how layered it is and how important this kind of foundation is. What can they do and what should they do? To, to help their child, um, to help their child or to their child at school, like what, what steps can yeah. parents do? What can they do with this knowledge? Yeah. So they're like, I have a couple of don'ts and what you should do instead. Mm-hmm. So, um, something that you want to, let's just talk about, let's first talk about like maybe the growth mindset idea. Mm-hmm. You want to really be conscious of the messages that you're giving your child. So we've already talked about like, um, this, these are, I've sat in many parent teacher, uh, parent student teacher meetings mm-hmm. and a very common phrase is, well, you know, your dad's the math person. And, and oftentimes it is the dad, the dad is the math person or your brother got the math gene. It's something that, um, unfortunately we place higher, we think males tend to have a higher ability to do this. Not true. Mm-hmm. Um, so often it is the female of the family that is kind of saying math was never my thing. I was never smart at math either. And it's really giving your child an okay to not be okay at math or to not persevere when things are getting a little difficult or, or, um, embrace the struggle that math might bring. So you want to think about instead of saying those kind of comments, um, think about doing something like, um, Hey, like, like modeling what it could look like to learn in math with them. Mm -hmm. So, Hey, like I also struggled with this concept. Let's sit down together and see if we can find some videos about it, or let's sit down together and think about what questions we can, we can, you can ask your teacher tomorrow for extra help and, and embracing that idea, like being vulnerable and showing this is what it, this is what it means to be a learner. I too had struggles and I wish that I would have overcome those struggles because maybe many more doors would have been open to me or if you don't have to say that either but no I love that I mean it whatever fits for the parent but I love the idea of creating that space that safe space where kids need to learn and the growth mindset it's huge and and for people who want to know more about the growth mindset that's Carol Dweck's work she's awesome and then um at Dr. Joe Bowler who works um with Carol Dweck actually has taken her research and put it into a math framework Oh, so like wonderful. it's, uh, there's a great website called YouCubed, Y-O-U-C-U-B-E-D.org. And it has just phenomenal resources for parents, phenomenal resources for kids. It has free courses that you can kind of like sign up for and work your way online through modules. Um, and, and something else I would say around the growth mindset piece is really focusing on what are you rewarding or complimenting for your child? So if you're finding yourself constantly about the grade that the child got on a test or, or talking about um, how smart they are and praising their smartness, you want to think about shifting that to praising effort because effort can be replicated, but the grade on a test might not be. Right. So if I come home and you're saying to me, uh, like I come home, I'm super excited and I'm showing you, I got 80% on this test. Instead of saying, oh, I told you you were smart, you could do this, you can start thinking about saying something along the lines like, see, I knew you were going to be able to do that because I saw you putting all that effort into looking over your notes. Or I know that you went in for extra help and told, like, asked some 
yeah. questions from your teacher or peers to get some clarification. And now look at the result that that came. Like, I'm so proud of you for putting in all that effort and persevering. Like when we start to praise those things, that's what's going to get replicated. If I don't get 80% on my next test, now how do I feel as a child if all you've done is uh, yeah. complement my grade? It's so true. And it's interesting because Carol Dweck's original studies were done on gifted kids. And, and what happens is they, they, their intelligence is so important to them and they don't want to risk anyone seeing them as not intelligent. So they would rather underperform, be lazy, do something at the last minute, say it's boring, say it's too easy, then try their best and fail or try their best and not do well. And so that language is really important. And in my family, it was really tricky because Jacob math is just, you know, comes very easily to him and it's what he loves and he sees the beauty in it and he gets excited about it. And, but he was also really good at, at other subjects too. And he never did any work, literally nothing in high school, yeah. Zip, zero and would get really good marks. And, and then Zoe, who's really bright also, but had to work hard to get good marks. And she would really work incredibly hard and maybe get the Jake's the, the marks that Jacob got and maybe not. And what am I, what do I do with that? Like, so I basically, Jacob, are you happy with the effort you put in? I mean, the kid's got a 90 and something, but I knew he did it at the last second or, you know, looked it over two minutes before the test. Um, and so it was more of a, like, do you feel good about the effort that you put into that? Do you feel like you uh, did what you needed to do. And he would always say yes. But what would happen is later, and this happens to gifted kids a lot, is it'll either get them, it'll often get them in grade 11 or grade 12. They have what I call the gifted crash. Um, or if they manage to push through, it'll hit them later in university, like third year. And then they'll, they'll realize, oh, I can't do the last minute thing anymore. It doesn't matter how smart I am. If I have five papers due, I've got five papers due, right? So it's sort of when you start with that growth mindset, you're really building that safety. And I wish I'd known more about it before, you know, Jacob sort of moved along in high school years. And then with Zoe, I could absolutely praise the effort because she worked really, really hard at it. So, it, and you're going to have kids, you're going to have kids that learn differently and do really well in certain things and not in others. And really watching that programming and those things that you say that just kind of fly out of our mouth sometimes, or the things we say about ourselves. Oh, I can't, yeah. I can't do math. Um, I think that's, those are really, really important things. Before I let you go, I have two questions. One, and we sort of touched on it. Can you just speak to the, the difference between boys and girls and how people see that in turn related to math? I think that's a really important, maybe I'll have you come back and we'll go deeper into it. But if you could just speak to that a little bit, I think that would be great. Yeah. What's, what's super interesting is Dr. Joe Bowler did, did a uh, research study on math anxiety and what she found. So to start with one in five adults will admit to experiencing actual math anxiety mm -hmm. and it's always more women than men yeah and closer to 80 percent, which is four out of the five they they might not actually suffer the extreme anxiety but they openly admit that they avoid math when possible and they have a, a, like a negative outlook on math um so what we found and there was another study done the the name of the authors is actually slipping my mind at the moment, but what they did is they looked at, I think it was fourth grade, grade four students, and they measured at the beginning of the school year, their ability, like how they felt about their own ability, their own efficacy to do mathematics. Mm -hmm. And then they did it again at the end of the school year and nothing, nothing in between. And all of the students, uh, of the students who had a female teacher, 
the majority of those females felt worse about themselves in mathematics, the female students, at the end of the school year compared to the beginning of the school year. And, and it's, it's not nothing that the teacher actually did, but just their own apprehension and whatever fixed mindset messages they gave about themselves. Wow. Females really yeah. cling to that, right? And they heard that and they took that on as their own belief system. And it like that study, I sh I'll try and find it for you. Um, that would be so great. Can yeah, see if you can find it, then we can put it in the show notes when. when yeah, because it great. was that was just like a mind blowing thing. Yeah. But in, but just in terms, there is there is a ridiculous stigma out there that says uh, males are better at math than females, mm -hmm. and there's absolutely zero proof of that anywhere ever. So, um, like, what what can you conclude from that? You can conclude. A lot of programs. <laughs> you can conclude a lot of programs. And I mean, I don't think I want to fully go into, like, I have my own opinions on it, but there'd be my opinions as opposed to like research-based opinions. But I'll just say, like, girls tend to be pleasers. You might want to cut this out because I don't have oh, proof I think, of it. I think, no, I think that's true. I think girls, at least, and there's a lot of like history and these programs have been passed down for hundreds of years, right? So, and boys also have their own programs that end up making life kind of difficult for them. But right. I think that's true. I think for the most part, girls are, and maybe less so than maybe when we were kids, but I don't know. I don't even know if that's true. But yeah, I think girls can be more pleasers and and smooth things over and want to be the good one and the nice one and not make trouble. And yes, yes, definitely. So Rhonda, I loved that piece. I feel like we have to have, an, I have to have you back. And I feel like I want to deep dive into that actual yes. piece. So why don't yes. I have you back and we'll deep dive into that. And then you can, you know, we can go over the research and we can really kind of look at those differences. I think that's a really interesting conversation. I feel like it's a bigger conversation than we have. Yes, I would um, love that. Okay. And you, I mean, you gave us great ideas for parents, just the kind of final thing to do. Do you have any tips for parents on advocating with the teacher? So let's say they have a teacher that's not super um open or has a lot of these programs like how can the parent advocate for their child mm -hmm. such a great question well number one you could check out that ucube.org and see Love if that. the teacher is also aware of ucube.org because there is quite a bit of research on there mm -hmm. that supports what you and i have been talking about today and there's also quite a bit um you know, to, to equip a parent for that kind of a conversation, um, to give them some ideas of where, like what lies within the rights of the parent and, and right. that's and a understanding. Yeah. It's something, and something else, like, I love the parents who advocate for their children, but like, and I, I've already said this, but it's so powerful to take the time to have your child advocate for themselves. So like, oh, if you can really, you know, take that time. I don't think I didn't, I don't think I got to this, but if you do have homework is kind of becoming, uh, do we really, is it really an equitable practice to be giving homework out? So you might have a teacher who gives homework or you might have a teacher that does not, but if you do have your child coming home with math homework, um, there's a, there's a couple of things that you need to think about. And that's like, don't actually do the work for them. Somehow in our minds, we have this idea that, oh, the homework has to get finished. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's actually feedback to the teacher. If you bring back 
a piece of homework that didn't get finished. So I, as the teacher realized like, oh, you know, the majority of my class didn't get this homework done. Maybe this is something that I should spend a little bit more time on. Right. But if you I yeah, wanted to ahead. interject because often yeah. teachers know when the parents done yes. that. They know, well, they yes. couldn't do this yesterday. How come all of a sudden they can do this? Like they often know and they're not getting accurate feedback. You're not, the homework fairy should not come, right? Yeah, the homework fairy <laughs> needs to retire yes. and just like head down south somewhere and enjoy the rest of her time. In yes, I agree. Yeah. I agree. So, um, like, a, like again, a better... A better use of your time instead of doing your child's homework is to sit with your child and either number one model Mm -hmm. what it means to help us try and figure out how this looks or let's come up with some questions that you can ask your teacher tomorrow that is going to help further your understanding on this topic like that's a that's a more valuable life skill than making sure they get their homework done yeah and then the the other thing i'll say and this is so common in math is it's not going to look like the way you were taught it So please do not say, I don't understand how your teacher did it. So I'm going to show you how I learned to do it. (laughs) You are actually interfering with like a really complex learning process that starts in the early years and continues its way into high school. We have like curriculums that have set up, been set up on developmental trajectories. We know so much more about how child's brains develop math concepts than we ever did before. And we're using that research. So you just kind of have to put a little bit of trust and faith in like, this might look crazy to you, but it's part of a bigger picture. And and you showing tricks is going to interfere with that. Okay. That is really important. I think that this has been an incredible conversation. I'm excited to have you come back. I'm excited to come back, Jennifer. (laughs) Well, and for me too, like having experienced as a kid, like really, uh, you know, and and I should probably do a shout out to the Renzetti teacher. I'm sure that teacher did what he thought was best at that time. That was many, I don't want to age myself. That was many, many years ago. And at the time, that's what people thought worked, right? So you can't go back and fix it, but you can change how you do things from now on. So this was an amazing conversation, Rhonda. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, everybody. Oh, you're welcome. And I will see you uh, next time on the next episode of Connected Parenting. Everyone, thank you so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Um, For more information on Connected Parenting, please go to connectedparenting.com. We have all kinds of resources for you to help you on your Connected Parenting journey. We have my books. We have our village where parents can get together, support each other, practice the techniques um, under the guidance and support of a Connected Parenting therapist or practitioner. We also have our courses, which allow you to, at your own pace, work through kind of in a deeper way, the connected parenting method. And in one of those courses, I get to interact with everyone once a month in a live coaching call, which is wonderful to talk to parents all over the world. Thank you so much for listening. And we will see you next time on the next episode of Connected Parenting.